What's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. Got to see each other in person this week for the first time in a minute. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing well. It's funny. I, I said to you at one point on, on what do we see, uh, Wednesday, when we saw one another, I was like, yo, man, this is the first time I've seen you since your birthday completely forgetting you and I kicked it in January so yeah kicked it at your spot uh for for those who don't know no your spot in January in my spot in January really? yeah we came uh, up for a meeting oh right right right, yeah. right that's right that's right I was about to tell the story about your racist dog uh <laughs> she's not it's not racist it's like black on black crime well, he, he he's he's next to me right now, and if my very white mailman uh, shows up today, mail carrier, I should say, he will be he will be aggro at him too. So Jake's dog is Clayton Bixby. For any Chappelle fans out there, <laughs> that's his nickname. <laughs> oh man, uh, yo, how was the trip, man? How's the rest of New York? It was good, man. I mean, apart from I am. I think I've slept 12 hours in the last three nights, but hopefully, you know, I, I'd understand if I looked at a little bit, but it was, it was good, man. It was, I think truthfully in my life, that was the first time I've spent um, four or five straight nights in the city. I've always been, you know, one, two or three, but it was like a, a whole business week uptown. And uh, that was cool. In your life? Yeah, I mean, you know, for the years I've lived in Philly, I've always been close enough where it just makes more sense for me to go back. And, you know, at times I'd, I'd have a night or two or I'd do like a, a getaway weekend, but never, I don't think ever four or five nights like that. So yeah. it was cool, man. I don't, I'm not a Knicks fan or anything like that after uh, just spending that short amount of time, but it was cool. I definitely vibed off the energy of the city. Word. Well, it's been a it's been an interesting week. As of yesterday, you and I came into this thinking, are we even going to do a podcast? Is there enough to cover? Those who've listened to us, you know, before, we don't like to just like fill the space just with nothingness. Uh, there's a, there's enough of that. And the whole ethos yeah. of Ambrosia for Heads is to give people only the good stuff. But, you know, the 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 media guys, the hip hop guys drop stuff in our lap sometimes. And today it was really unexpected. We got a new album from Jack Harlow called Jack Man, and uh, it, it has yielded lots and lots of material to discuss. But let's kick it off, man. First and foremost, let's talk about it sonically. Um, 24 minutes long, 10 songs, no features, which is in so many ways a statement to me. You know, one, I think it's just a product of our ADHD society where people don't have more than 30 minutes to dedicate to any one thing. Even this podcast, I encourage people, put us on 2x speed. Jake and I are both much more entertaining uh, in our chipmunk mode. Um, we also you know, we also talked about, I mean, you know, like you said, we met this week. And one of the things we talked about is like, and, and I'd love any input or discussion on this of like, yo, you know, we never waste anyone's time just to do it. But should this be a bit more abbreviated? Are we too long winded, et cetera? So we're always considering that because not to finish your point, like attention and time is a commodity. Absolutely. It is a commodity. And, you know, listen, we see it everywhere. So uh, video clips are getting shorter and shorter. It used to be three, five minute videos on YouTube. And now you've got 15 seconds on TikTok. And that was formerly Vine and, and YouTube shorts. on IG. And, and so YouTube is do, doing shorts. People have less and less time. And, and want to spend less and less time on things, except for like, you know, uh, like 
like series, like binging on Netflix or whatever it may be. So I think it's really smart for him to do an album this short. And, you know, we saw that that template kind of with Kanye when he did uh, six releases, each of them seven songs. I think one was eight. And I thought that was going to become a new paradigm. But I, I think that this is a really smart move and there's not a second wasting on this. But what was your initial take on the album sonically? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I I like that. I like that packaging. I think credit is deserved to good music and Kanye back in 2018 for that. And we kind of see the two schools. You either get a lot of albums like this or we still get those hour length or sometimes hour plus length, which feels like when an artist you know, is taking a step. Either they're taking a step to release their full body of work and maybe they put out EPs or they're really swinging for the Grammy fences. And I'm curious, I mean, the year's young, but I'm curious how this will be processed because to answer your question, after two listens, just two listens, um, I would say this is Jack Harlow's best body of work, but I will also say with the caveat of, um, you know, it, I didn't, I didn't think I'd wake up this morning to be talking about Jack Harlow. Word. So you think it's his best body of work ever, like not just because, you know, for me, I'm a big Jack Harlow fan and we're going to get into that. Jake sent me a foul text that we're going to discuss on air today. Okay. <laughs> it was just foul. Maybe it was the uh, sleep, but, you know, yeah. But I was actually really disappointed with the last album, Come Home, The Kids Miss You. You know, I yeah. like Churchill Downs, The Drake Joint. And I think there was one or two others we may have put on the, on the playlist, but I found it to be pretty disappointing. The album before that with Tyler Hero and What's Poppin', I thought was pretty dope. It had maybe four or five songs, but those two songs in particular were standouts. And he's given me glimmers over the years, like Static Selectors Time, which I think is one of the the, the best songs in that entire album, that show that make me believe he's one of hip-hop's next ones. Um, and last the last project didn't deliver. But I agree with you on this one. I, th I think this one delivers like pretty much front to back. Like it's, it, I don't have anything that I'm ready to skip. Right. There's a lot of stuff that I ran back, you know, even before it finished uh, on first listen. Well, you use the word sonically. And, and here's the thing I'll say about Jack Harlow is, you know, in early 2022, you and I did a podcast in these, I believe it was January or February, where we kind of looked at, boom, here we are, 2022, like a lot of a decade ahead who are the upcoming stars going to be? And we had a list that include Meg Thee Stallion, um, Corday, and Jack made that list, and deservingly so. And I think you just named a couple of them. Jack has made really good songs up until this point. I would say, from the way that I approach hip-hop, my my taste, my age range, my context, um, I don't... I, he He's never made stuff that I, I would... Like, his albums I didn't think were bad, but they weren't something that I would pleasure listen to. They were something that either we would cover in limited lenses through the site or just be curious. And we've had him on the playlist. I completely agree with the static joint. You said the word sonically. And what I like about this album is um, the beats. Like, you know, it's it's got a great sound. And Jack, I've always thought in the last three years since I've been aware of his profile, 2018, 2019, he is great in an era where artists are kind of going free with it. Jack raps to the beat and he really holds time. And I think that this album really showcases his flow and his ability to command a song. Yeah, his flow is dope. It's not the most complicated flow, mm -hmm. but he says ill things. He's got great punchlines. He's super authentic in what he says. And when he's on, he's on. Like I thought the killer remix with uh, Corday on Eminem, mm -hmm. like he really, he destroyed that. Like I thought he had the best verse on that entire track. And we're going to get into the Eminem discussion too, because that's prominently raised in this album. 
But, you know, there are times when it feels like his his verses are kind of mailed in. And that's what the last album, I thought a lot of it seemed like Rush, just kind of like, you know, just ho-hum. You know, but this one, he is like laser focused. It's almost like he's in mixtape mode. I think he got sharp with DJ Drama. I didn't realize DJ Drama's role in introducing Jack Harlow to the world until this last press tour with with, with Drama. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think that his performance with Drama, you know, is probably something that kind of got him back in that mentality. I'm not sure when all of this album was recorded. I do know some songs were recorded as recently as January. So um, you know, I think I think he was in his prime in this, in this album in a way that he hasn't been in the past. Um, you know, so sonically, but okay, I said I was, he was a fan. I said I was a fan of his. Would you call yourself a fan of Jack Harlow? No, I've never, you know, when people ask what I listen to and even, or they solicit contemporary artists that I like, I've never, I don't think I've ever said anything overly critical of Jack. I'm, I'm probably said different variations of what I'm saying now, but I would not file myself under a fan. Why is that? Um... I think for me to call somebody a fan, I have to probably like you and I have on the side joked about the word love. Like I'll be like, yo, man, I, I love this beer. I love these. You know, I love that sports team. I think you use it a little bit more sparingly, but for it's similar to fan for me to be a fan. I need to love three to five songs, um, you know, and I think with Jack up until this point, that joint with static time, I think is excellent. You kept it on the playlist. You and I spoke to Static about it. I would consider that an excellent song. If he gave me two more of those or hopefully four more of those songs that I feel to that level, that's when you start to become a fan. You know, um, I was aware of Kendrick Lamar, but in 2011, I became a fan. I was aware of Big Crit, but in 2010, I became a fan. Not to, you know, to quote Gangstar, that stuff should be a little bit hard to earn. So Tyler Hero doesn't fit in that no, I appreciated the record. You liked it a lot more than me. And that was definitely like I had seen the name around. Um, you're, and tell me if I'm misrepresenting it, but your enthusiasm for that song at the time, just over text, I think you, I know you had it on the playlist. I don't know if we did a site post, but it made me pay attention on a deeper level. And I think you and I have have had the the friendship and the collaborative relationship where that happens you know, from time to time, there's artists that I really dig that you might be a little bit tepid on or even cold. And then over time, you'll be like, oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that you like it, let me listen. OK, I, I like it. Now I'm a fan. So I liked what's popping like against against my will. Like I, I kind of wanted to hate on it because it was so ubiquitous. And, you know, I thought it was representative of something we're going to discuss in a few minutes. You know, um, him just being overhyped because of his race and but the song is undeniably catchy to me i thought it was going to be poppy though and i didn't know that he was going to have another song in him personally mm. but then when tyler hero dropped that beat was so tough and you know his punchlines are so crazy and the flow to your point is impeccable that i started saying wait a minute this dude this dude is this dude is is real and then time dropped shortly after that and i was like ah oh, man it's, it's a rap this dude is this dude is that guy he can do underground joints where he's talking about uh, real stuff, you know, talking about Mac Miller and his death and how much that hurt him and talking to Static Selective about it on a Static Selective beat. And he can also do really, really big joints, you know, like uh, what's popping. 
and pull out both of them, you know, with the same flair. So that's when I was like, okay, he's the truth. It's funny you say what you say about drama. Um, I think in addition to your, you know, sharing some songs early on, drama's endorsement made me pay closer attention. Um, you know, I'm in I'm in Philly right now as we're recording this, and I'll tell you, full disclosure, I've not been the biggest uh, little Uzi Vert fan. I think you and I caught a concert of Uzi's at a Roots picnic in 2016. I was really interested to watch that. I was particularly interested because Prince Paul's son, DJ P for real is was Uzi's DJ at the time. Um, but Uzi is hasn't connected with me on that level, even if he is one of the stars of this city at the moment. But I like drama's pedigree because drama has always had this ability to spot what's happening, but still connect it to his just being a B-boy, just being a hip-hop fan. And with Jack in particular, because his flow was accessible, because he kind of had a stream of conscious uh you know, style to his rhyming, especially on those songs. I paid attention because I was very curious to watch how he's developed because drama, even though he didn't sign Migos, was one of the ground floors with Migos. Drama played a role in one of my favorite Outkast songs, Post Anconia and the Art of Storytelling Part 4. I mean, I know we know Mr. Thanksgiving and this big, big mixtape personality who's been associated with trap music, but drama's a hip-hop guy. So that always, and Don Cannon, that always makes me want to take heed. All right. Well, so you said you need another two, preferably three joints. Let's get into this album. And I want to want to have this conversation again at the end to see if any of these 10 songs like rise to that level for you. So right out of the gate, Jack comes with this song called Common Ground. And this song is where he is going straight at uh, people in the suburbs, people. And let's let, let's not use euphemisms. I think he's going at white fans of hip hop who liked the voyeurist, voyeurism aspect of it, uh, you know, the, the violence, the, the, you know, the, the drugs, the misogyny, things like that, and live kind of vicariously through that, but don't want to actually associate with the people who are making the product. And, you know, he says stuff like the suburbs are filled with Ebonics and Trapsonics, frat boys saying no cap, put racks on it. You know, he talks about white girls squatting to try and get that ass popping. Um, he talks about local homicide rates. Got him astonished reading about it on a laptop in pajamas. Like, I mean, he really kind of goes in. And it's it's a, a, an interesting commentary for me from someone who I believe most would probably lump into the crowd that he's criticizing. What do you mean? Meaning that he's a white rapper. I think most people assume oh, okay. that he is part of the crowd that he's criticizing. Yeah, I mean, comes from greater Louisville, Kentucky. Um, yeah, it, it is an interesting point. Um, and, and those things that you said, a lot of that was direct quote verse. Um, yeah, I mean, you started to say a line that really jumped out at me. Um, you know, local homicide rates got him astonished reading about it on a laptop in pajamas. Microsoft Office to complete their assignments, never seen the hood, still can't help but have comments. Um, I thought that that was an interesting line of just, you use voyeurism, to me, you know, it's like cultural safari. You know, people that 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 are thrilled by what's going on, but can't really relate to it and certainly don't, don't necessarily um, sympathize with it or do anything about, you know, evening the playing field, so to speak. Yeah. You know, and he says, never had a convo with a kid from that climate. 
that really has trauma that really got to survive by any means. He talks about, and this line really stood out to me because you and I had a discussion recently about my experience at a, a JID concert. Said the festivals are filled with Larry Bird jerseys, college students in a hurry to jump to a four count and say the N word. Mm. And, you know, dude, I've been to a lot of concerts as of late and, you know, uh, majority white audience, black performer, and the N word is like flying, like flying, like, uh, like flags out there. I mean, it's, it's crazy. There is no censorship whatsoever. It's said with flair and gusto. You know, we talked about Kendrick, Kendrick, uh, you know, talking about it on his own album and the fact that he had to censor a, a fan at one point for getting on stage and dropping Great the video. N-word right in front of him. Um, so, you know, Can I ask you a question. Yeah. From from a white guy to a black guy, from uh, from a white guy to a black guy who's in the biggest basketball fan I know and somebody who spent several years living in Boston. When you're outside of Boston and you see. Uh, a white person wearing a Larry Bird jersey. Do you, does your mind do any calculations? It's almost like a Confederate flag. Yes. Really? Uh, Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it feels almost like a badge of honor, you know? Um, And no shade to Larry Bird. He's from my home state. I love Larry Bird, but we all know the demographics of the NBA. And I don't know that, those folks are wearing other people's jerseys, right? If it's a part of one, um, you know, and of many, you know, and there's a Jordan jersey and a Ewing jersey and a Magic jersey and so forth, cool. But when it's Bird, it starts to feel a bit like Rocky to me, where, um, you know, people are chasing a particular aesthetic within the league. That's interesting. And and I'm sure with time, too. I mean, do you feel any differently? Let me just ask a caveat. Do you feel any different if you're in, you know, greater Boston area? I mean, I do. But, you know, Boston's a notoriously racist city. Like Segregated. It's got a, a pretty, a pretty uh, harsh history when it comes to that. And so I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I guess I'd feel differently if it's a Paul Pierce jersey or a Jason Tatum jersey. You know what I mean? But like Bird... There's, I think a lot of times there's some messaging there. Yeah, I mean, growing up in Pittsburgh, you know, we don't have it with basketball. But over time, like in recent years, in like a post-Trump America, when I see fans that are wearing the tight end jersey, or Ben Roethlisberger for that matter, for all of those years, I would make assumptions like, oh, that means I, I think I know how you voted. I think I know whether there you got truck tires. Like you make all of these other and it was just an interesting lyric in the song. At first, I was obviously thinking of that scene and do the right thing because, you know, Spike in Spike's infinite way, dude's wearing a Larry Bird jersey when he does that. And Bird was still playing when that movie came out. But, yeah, it's funny that Jack made that, and I just wanted to have that that sidebar question. It makes you think they're going to be shooting up Bud Light cans at some point, right? <laughs> that's that's that right with those truck tires and everything else. Yes, sir. Exactly. All right, so so let's step back and look at it, man. So first of all, um, do you agree with the point overall? Do you think that there are a lot of white fans out there who are voyeuristic? Or, well, I'm gonna read one more. I'm gonna read one more because this yeah. speaks directly toward um toward you know potentially toward you, right? And so yeah. he says, condensing uh condescending suburban kids growing up to be rap journalists, writing urban myths about who they think is the best urban kid. So now, like, okay, clearly you are a white journalist in a um, in a genre that is predominantly dominated by black artists. 
Um, does that line make you feel away? No, you know what? It, at 18 or at 20, it might have. Um, the funny part is you mentioned Clayton Bigsby earlier. I think I think there's something to be to be said for that line, and I'm certainly not above it in any way, shape, or form. What do you mean you're not above it? Like I'm not above I'm not saying that, like I'm not walking over, you know. I know obviously Jack Harlow is a white artist saying that, and I'm not saying as though I'm immune to the criticism myself. I think that um the way that many sports journalists are covered by people that are not athletes i think that you know especially in the internet age um hip-hop is continuously covered by folks that first of all just can't regardless of you know you know race ethnicity but can't you know can't make a dope hip-hop song some of them can you know there's there's folks out there shout out to rob markman he has a rap career and he is one of the top rap journalists of this time um, but there are folks out here that, um, you know, and by and large, didn't grow up in an environment that they write about, analyze, and to Jack's point, can be quite condescending about. All right. So that's what I want to get into, right? And that, this is the point that I was raising at the top about Jack criticizing a group that people from the outside looking in might think that he's a part of. So clearly, well, again, so do you think that he's correct in that that a large segment of the white audience that consumes hip-hop is doing so for voyeuristic reasons and aren't really down with the people who create the culture um i think that there's a large segment of jack harlow's audience that falls under that and you know artists of that magnitude that have fan bases that large um i think you know you could make that claim um you know, you could make that claim. I'm trying to think of other artists that might fit that bill. Possibly a Tyler, the creator's fan base. I don't. I mean, I know I'm purely speculating, but we go to shows and you're, I'm thinking of very front running, you know, artists that have sizable populations because that's where the difference is. I think as you start to get into some nuance, it gets a little bit different. And I don't know that there's... Um, as much voyeurism there's no way to scientifically back this up i'm, I'm gonna push back i'm gonna push back on your qualification a little bit i don't think okay. it's just, i don't think it's just jack harlow fans i think it is a large portion of fans of rap music who who are not black mm -hmm. and that jid example is the perfect one you know i think that most white people would not use the n-word in a black person's face in a conversation you know, referring to them that way, you know, you see the Morgan Wallen lessons and things like that out of that. He's the country singer who was caught on tape dropping the N-bomb, um, you know, with friends, not in necessarily a racist way, but in a way that was inappropriate. I don't think that most people would do that, but yet and still they have no problem saying it in concert. Right. And so that to me shows a kind of a disconnect with with the culture. Um you have artists like Yeet, who I just heard for the first time a few months ago. I know he's been around and pretty popular. Have you listened to Yeet's music? You know, I may have listened to a song or two. I couldn't give you a title right now. So if you listen to Yeet, he basically sounds like Future, as if he was white. Same subject matter, same intonation, same everything. And I, I see that shocked look on your face. No, I, I, the funny part is it's real time shock because I was not certain if Yeet was a white artist or not. Like yes. that's how little I know about Yeet. And the funny part is, is if I'm, I may be mistaken and I did sign an agreement, so I cannot say who, but I do believe I wrote um, a short, a shorthand bio for a digital streaming service, you know, provider on Yeet 
um, unaware because when I write somebody's bio, I don't write white artist, black artist, brown artist. But so I, I'll yeah. say it like this: people. When I heard Yeet, I thought about the kind of comparisons and criticisms that were directed toward Iggy Azalea back in the day, where you have a, a white artist putting on an affectation to sound black and is like like catering toward the most ridiculous stereotypes to a point where it almost seems like it's blackface. That That's you to me. Um, gotcha. And I think there are a lot of uh, people out there who listen to the music and you know, we, we've been talking about Clayton Bigsby. It's it's a, it's an apropos example. The reason why Dave Chappelle really walked away from the Chappelle show is because in season three, he was doing this skit, and the skit was uh, he had an angel of himself on one shoulder and a a, a black uh, and a, a demon, a devil of himself on another shoulder, being his conscience. And he made a joke about fried chicken, and uh, there were some. Um, white people in the studio laughing really hard. And he thought for the first time, mm, they're not really laughing with me and getting the joke. They're laughing at me. And, you know, uh, this is not, this is not how I want to go out. This is not what I want to put out there. And I don't know what the percentages are, but I think there's probably a, a healthy percentage of people who truly don't understand the culture and are really succumbing to a lot of the stuff that Jack is saying in his song. And I, I don't think it's just his fans. I think it's a lot of fans of hip hop. No, and to be clear, I mean, your example was Jid, J-I-D, and I think that he fits the same bill. And the reason is, I mean, Jid is a very big artist. And I am i wasn't singling out Jack at all. I just used him as an example. But I'm I'm thinking of artists that are, are big at what they do, have a dedicated but possibly transient fan base. Um, Jid, and I believe he will, you know, we will see if he's able to carry fans um, 10 years. We'll see if Jack Harlow is able to carry fans 10 years. But when you talk about the meaningful hip hop artists of the now that are reaching a widespread generation, those are two examples. Meg Thee Stallion's an example. Arguably, you know, Corday is. I'm thinking of festival circuit artists that bring people to shows, that bring people in droves out to concerts. Um and I don't know that Jack Harlow is, you know, like I benefited in my generation, you know, we had, we had, you know, Black Star, we had De La Soul, we had these common, we had these groups that in order to be a legitimate fan, you had to be a fan of other things you had to. And there was a message involved. And I know that Jack Harlow is trying to give a message with this song. And I actually, if nothing else, I applaud him for raising the question I think I, I'm just saying this to, to say I think we're saying some of the same things, but I do think it very much applies to Jack Harlow's fan base. And, and another, I mean, Uzi Vert, that's another that I'll probably give you. But I know from my time in Philadelphia that little Uzi Vert has a sizable black fan base, too, and presumably a sizable brown fan base. Yeah. When you, so when you say Jack Harlow's fan base, are, are you suggesting that he has a larger uh, white fan base than most? And it's primarily the type of people who would who would be fans of his? Because you know, for me, like, you know, we know the stats, right? Seventy percent of hip hop is consumed by non-black people. And uh, a large portion of that percentage is white, just you know, based on pure demographics. And so that means they're listening to a lot more than Jack Harlow. And I don't think the mentality mentality deviates necessarily from artist to artist. Yeah. Or maybe like a Kendrick fan or like someone who is more conscious than that is a bit more nuanced about it. 
But, and this is what a lot of people have been raising recently about like record companies and what they're putting out. So much of rap is nihilistic and, you know, about self-destruction, either through, you know, shooting each other or, you know, forcing drugs upon one another and so forth. And a lot of that fan base is white and they're not living in that condition. And so I think just by definition, it applies to what Jack is saying on his song. Yeah, I, I, I 100% would agree with that. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll put myself out there, you know, as a, let's see, I was a teenager in 1997. So, you know, that's a kind of a transitional year in hip hop. But prior to that, you know, and I'm entering adolescence 10, 11, 12, like, death row and bad boy are the reigning kings of of rap music on mtv anyway you know i won't even say rap city but if you were watching linear television with music videos you would see your dre's your snoops your warren g's and so on and a lot of that stuff for my uh 10 11 12 year old self in retrospect was voyeuristic you're talking about low riders and throwing signs that are blurred out in the videos and weed leaves i know none of that i know none of that but at some point, and, and, you know, my hip hop journey just starts to connect to more information, more, more, more history of just the genre, and you start to fall down rabbit holes. But that inflection point of, you know, that's optional. Like, you can be a fan of, you know, who's, who's the biggest rock band right now? You can be a fan of Imagine Dragons. I'll just pick them and have no clue what the guitarist's name is, have no clue what the lead singer's name is, and pay $75 to go to a concert, but it's whether or not you take those next steps that decide if you're really ahead. And it, we're at an intersection here because is it really, are you, do you care about people of color or are you a hip hop head? Jack is kind of, I think, making both of those points. So this leads into the next, the next thing I want to talk about, right? Which is why is he able to make himself an exception from that? What about Jack Harlow differentiates himself from the people he's criticizing? And to me, it sounds like, you know, so I go back to the line, never had a convo with a kid from that climate. I've seen Jack Harlow in a lot of photos and things like that. He, uh, in a lot of his videos, it seems like his inner crew was predominantly black. I know he's dated a lot of black women. It seems like he's grown up around, um, you know, people in the community and is affiliated. And so I think he makes himself an exception because in his mind, he's actually down with folks who like make the culture and, and, you know, the circumstances that he's rapping about. I would say you have also interacted with tons of people who are authentically in the hip hop community. You've not looked at this from a voyeuristic standpoint and not engaged. You've, you know, met with people, you've written bios, you've, become friends with a lot of people. Like I would say that you're different than the journalist that he's criticizing, but you know, wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would, but it, I appreciate, I appreciate that context. I don't think it's for Jack to say whether or not he's immune to his own criticism. And I don't think I, I look back at the younger me, like, you know, whether, you know, stepping to women or just trying to seem like we're, more involved in the culture, I can I can look at things where we where we as people, but I'll say the we as, you know, white participants of hip hop culture look to qualify ourselves. And and you know, sixteen year old me, I did not grow up in inner city Pittsburgh, but I grew up you know like eight miles outside, and I remember saying that you know you know like seventy miles out, like you look for ways to to try to qualify yourself and and. 
I look back at, at, you know, 14 or 15 year old me, and I wish that I knew then what I know now. I'm just like, you don't, what are you trying to prove? Just, just be respectful, listen more than you speak and live, you know, live and always remember, you know, I know that Lord Jamar got himself into a provocative moment in the last decade when he said that white folks were guests in the house of hip hop. When he said that, I had no, I agree. Like I always treat myself as a guest and I would do that whether I wasn't a 20 year member of the media. If I'm just a fan, I love this music. There are aspects of it that I can live and relate to my life. Many, many aspects, but there are aspects and, and perspectives in the music, in the lyrics that I can never relate to, nor should I try to extend myself to try to make it about me. That's my, that's my whole stance. Yeah, for sure. And I agree with that to some degree, you know, so I think, so a few things. So first of all, uh, the question becomes, does he have the right to make this commentary at all? Right. Uh, secondly, if he does, does he have the right to exclude himself from the audience that he's criticizing? And that, that's up for debate. We've been talking about that. And answer could be yes to both those questions or no to both those questions or or both. Right. Um, I do think, though, that there's a matter of degree. And there are some people who rap the lyrics, you know, watch the people on Instagram and stuff like that and would never, ever, ever talk to someone like that that wasn't famous on the street mm. versus others who absolutely would, you know, go wherever. I'm sure you've been to all sorts of uh, predominantly black environments and concerts and things like that and spoken and probably been the only white dude in the room on a number of occasions and been comfortable in that situation. That doesn't mean that you have the right to, you know, use the N word and stuff like that. So there's degrees, right? And so why do you keep asking me after knowing you for 10 years this month, you've done it like 10 times with a drink in your hand and without you say, have you ever used the N word? Well, yeah, I still don't believe that you like all along with the windows rolled up, wrapping along to like Snoop and Dre, uh, like, you know, skip every other mm -hmm. word. But 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 we'll see. Uh, yeah. But you at least have the, the, the savvy to not say it in public. Right. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so but, you know, my bigger yeah. point is there's degrees to it. Right. And um, I do think it's a fair criticism of those who would absolutely not interact with someone aside from someone famous that they like, you know? And I don't know what percentage that is. That might be a small percentage. It might be a big percentage, but I take this to, to be aimed at, the, at those folks. Yeah, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. And I always have a problem with the yeah, but not me factor, you know, um, in general. And it's like, you know, my dad always had this line, you know, when somebody gets a new wristwatch, they're just dying for somebody to ask them what time it is. They just want to pull out the watch and show. And I'm always, you know, you made the point about, you know, Jack's friends and some of his choices in relationships and dating. And, you know, all of that said, I don't think Jack has a place to say, yeah, but not me. I just, I just don't. So and I, what you're telling me is you prefer Macklemore over Jack Harlow. I do not. I do not. You know, and you know what I'm you know where I'm going with this, right? Because you remember what Macklemore's song White Privilege? Yeah. Where he he did exactly what you're saying, right? He called out the benefits that he has as a white rapper and fully acknowledged that he's probably much more popular than he would be if he was not white. 
Right. But then also says, you know, um, you know, he acknowledges his privilege and, and says that he can't like speak on it. He, he's, I think, is much more in line with this approach than what Jack is doing, which is kind of making himself other than the people he's cre- he's criticizing. Yeah, I didn't. You and I, I, I mean, that was, I think, 2013, 2014. I remember, I mean, we were just starting to work together, but I was not impressed or pounding my chest along to either version of of Macklemore's white privilege because to me at the time I mean that came off as you know like almost like somebody swinging for the white messiah fences of just like yeah I'm gonna say what's on no one's mind and you know it's it's cool if it raises discussion and it raises thought but that's not the music that I want to play when I'm walking down the street or in my car um so I, you know, you asked me, and I prefer Macklemore to to Jack musically. I'm gonna go Jack. Macklemore, make no mistake, Macklemore has a few songs that I've enjoyed, but they both did something in the song. Since you raised the point that I found a little bit curious, arguably troubling. Um, and I'll read you the lyrics. One second here. Um, he says he says something about Percocet. This is it. He says, college students, you, you you quoted the first part of this, college students in a hurry to jump to a four count and say the N-word, business interns taking Molly, then perks, trampling on top of bodies and dirt. Um, so Macklemore recently came out with that song, Heroes, and we covered it on the site, and you and I went back and forth behind the scenes on whether or not to cover it, had DJ Premier scratching on it, and you and I both hold Primo in the highest of regards, and Primo and Macklemore have worked together before, but what was a little bit rough about the song is Macklemore was talking um, about all of kind of the negative things that he learned from hip hop. And it was very, um, I'll say the word caricaturistic of like drinking forties. I forget if he was talking about smoking Sherm and, you know, like, like little odds and ends of, of stealing stuff. And I just thought it was super corny. And the funny part for me is I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. When I think of Percocet and Molly, I don't think of black folks. I think of white people. I think that we learn the slang Perk 30 and Molly from rap music, of course. But I'm like, Jack, if you're trying to make that part of the point, um, I don't like you painting rap music with that brush. And I don't like you from one white guy to another of painting black culture with that brush. I read that one differently. Uh, I read that one much more on the nose than what you're suggesting. And there is one of the biggest songs of the year, if not the biggest song of the year, and I forget what year, but it's like four or five years ago, was Future Percocet, Molly Percocet. That was the hook, right? Uh, Future is that. And, and you got tons and tons of people just that's all they're talking about is Percocet, Molly Percocet. So uh, I think that while that might be the case that those drugs originated or were, you know, predominantly used in other cultures, I do think that Future had a role in making it even more popular. And I think he's talking strictly about that. People who heard Future and thought it was cool, like like what, what he did with Lean. Yeah, I mean, but it, hmm, I mean, here's a counterpoint. You know, what about Little Zan? You know, who who might be Latino, but I believe Little Zan is a, a white artist. I saw Little Zan walking down the street one day in Philly, but there was a whole movement of artists. And sh- absolutely, Future is one of the biggest. That was the chorus. That was one of the biggest songs of what, 2016, whatever it was, 2017. What um, to I me, it was again, just about it, that song. I think it was really just about okay. that song. It's, it's it's a shot at future. Well, not at future, but of people who are future fans who 
got turned on to those drugs and think they're being more like future by, by taking Molly and Percocet. I think that's why you use it in combination. Man. Okay. Well, you know, Yellow Wolf was rapping about pills in you know, 2010 on the Trump music stuff. And I know we're saying the same thing and we're splitting hairs, but yeah, we're yeah not that was one thing. We're not just, okay. I, I agree with your overall point, but I don't think that he was, um, I don't think he was making a commentary trying to suggest that those originated. I think it's more that they were popularized by a, a black rapper and that this whole song is about people trying to mimic black rappers um, and be cool, but not do but not be associated with them in real life. You know? Uh, all right. So this song, okay. But this, we've been talking for a minute. This is just the first song on a, on a 24 minute album. We talk more about this song than, than the length of the album. Right. And, yep. On the second song. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Or there's another song uh, later on called It Can't Be, which I think is a really good contrast to this song because um, he's clearly got a chip on his shoulder, right, about race on this album. So he starts off with that song. And then on the next song, the whole song It Can't Be is about uh, the criticism he's likely faced for his success being attributable strictly to his race. Right. And so he said, it must be my skin. I can't think of any other reason I win. But then he goes through and lists like tons and tons of things that he does that he believes make him successful besides the color of his skin. So he said, it can't be the years of work I put in. It can't be the way that I stuck with the same friends. It can't be the swag swag I got when I walk in. It can't be the way I treat people or how I make time to see people or make sure that they all feel like equals. It can't be my smile. It can't be my eye contact with these crowds. It can't be my pen. It can't be my verse. Uh, you know, he goes through a litany of things. You know, one thing I thought was really interesting, it says, it can't be the thought I put into every choice. It can't be the Jeep instead of the Rolls Royce, which I thought was pretty sharp commentary. And then it can't be the tribe and the book, the Biggie and the Nas, the outcast and the Missy in my iPod talking about like he's really about this culture and study his history and like learn from the greats. But in the face of how do you, how do you see these two songs, uh, you know, and how they relate to one another? Yeah. I mean, on one hand he is kicking at, I'll just use the word like white culture vultures and, and culture vulture might be taking it a little bit too far because if I also understand Jack correctly, it's not even necessarily the culture they're after. I mean, black culture, but Jack Harlow's perception of what black culture is, um, you know, in this song in a bracket is just like, it's, it's not because I'm white. Like if you, if you wanted the title in parentheses, this would be, you know, Jack Harlow, it can't be bracket. It's not because I'm white, um, which is, is interesting. I mean, there's definitely like, if you have 24 minutes, 10 songs, 20% of it and more so in time, has to do with race and Jack's thoughts about it. I think that says a lot about 2023 and one of the biggest stars in rap music right now. But I'm 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 still processing after 
I listen to both of these songs more than twice. I listen to the whole album twice, but I'm still processing on how these songs relate to each other in Jack's mind as well as in my mind. But I'm curious for you, how do they relate? Man, I think I think it's impossible to separate race from performance. We talked about Lord Jamar, and Lord Jamar has been one of the most outspoken critics of Eminem that that I can recall, right? And it's the age-old criticism that Eminem would not be as popular as he is if he were not white. Um, I think it's impossible to separate race from performance. And that I and I, I agree that, um, and we've seen this time and time again in every genre, that a white artist who does something that a black artist did previous to that person typically has much more success, right? That was Elvis, that's NSYNC and Backstreet Boys over, you know, Boys to Men and New Edition. That is uh, Eminem. Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake, you know, same thing. And, you know, that's that's Eminem versus like, that's the Beastie Boys and Run DMC, you know, and that was the first kind of conflict for me or, you know, so I like the Beastie Boys and um, License to Ill was dope. Uh, Paul Revere was crazy. MCA's, uh, MCA's voice is incredible. Um, Hold It Now, I just heard the other day. Classic. But I couldn't help but feel a way when, you know, uh, you know, my white friends were talking about the BC boys like they were the, the you know, the the sun, the moon, and the stars, but did not in any way talk about Run DMC, you know, or they were an after, and especially given that Run DMC wrote a lot of the BC boys rhymes, right? That was the first time I kind of took note that, that uh, white artists were viewed differently and given like kind of a, a a push that black artists didn't have. Same thing happened with Eminem, right? And I was glad that Dre was the co-signer, but the way he exploded, I don't, I, I, it's that, but so when I say that they're inseparable, what I'm saying is that um, I think there's always going to be that extra push, but that also doesn't take away from the fact that a person is dope. Right. It could be two things. And yes, there's probably amplification and, you know, it's two X, three, whatever the, the increased, popularity is 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 maybe because of race but it doesn't mean that Eminem isn't in the argument for greatest rapper of all time you know he is I think definitely in that argument I wouldn't say he is but I think he's in the argument right um and Jack Harlow is one of the dopest stars of his generation and I think that would go if he was black white you know Latino whatever um but I think it's impossible for him to say it's not because he's white. That's always going to be a plus one to whatever great qualities he has, in my opinion. Do you think these, I mean, you know, there's a lot to unpack in both of these songs, and that's just what we're doing. Are these ideas worthy of a song to you, either of them or both of them? I think they are, because I think that um, regardless of how you fall on the substance and whether or not you agree, there, there are things that he's grappling with. There are things that are really authentic to him. And clearly, and I think the thing that um, relates to two songs is he's really trying to figure out what his place is as a white man in hip hop. And part of that is saying, I'm not like those culture vultures, those people who are just on the outside looking in. That's not me. I'm really down with the culture. And part of it is saying, I know I might be perceived as benefiting from being white, but let me tell you why I think that I really deserve this because I got X, Y, and Z. 
I think right. these are things, and no matter what you believe the answer to be to those those questions that he's raising, I think they're authentic to him, and I actually celebrate that kind of authenticity in people's art. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely depth here, and these songs warrant the discussion. I um, yeah, I I hear you. I hear you on that. I mean, what about you? I mean, you don't think they're worth a song, or you know, the the it can't be. Um... I don't know. Trying to have his cake and eat it too. Yeah, I'm just like Jack. Just do your job, and the rest will come later. You know, like you mentioned, Clayton Bigsby. Wait, but what's the job? What's the job? Rap, rap, really effing good. Make a good. Is that the only job, though? I mean, is that is that why we? The only reason why you like Kendrick or Jay or whoever that they're they're great rappers. No, but I mean, here's the thing about Jack Harlow. Jack Harlow has never made me cringe. You know, like, and I, I don't follow dudes. You know, I don't follow him on Instagram. I don't, you know, I haven't, I don't tune into an award show because he's performing. I've seen, you know, in large part, some of the things that you've shown me, but when he's come across my radar, I look at Jack Harlow and I'm like, yeah, you're cool. You and I recently did a podcast in, in March about things that logic has done that are uncool. Logic has made me cringe. You know, I can take my shoes off to count how many times, like Jack Harlow's never done that, but I firmly believe from one white guy to another, I guess, um, I would say I've got 15 years in life of life on Jack Harlow. Just shut up, do your work. The rest will come later. Don't, don't, yeah, but the situation. Um, no, but I gotta, I gotta, man, do your work though. Isn't I think the work is rap incredibly artfully, and rap about stuff that is worthy of art. And for me, stuff that's worthy of art is things that are your truest, authentic self. And so that's why I love Donald Glover, right? He lived different ex- existence than a lot of his peers. And he rapped about that existence instead of pretending he was something that he wasn't. Eminem did the same thing. Kendrick does that. Uh, they lost soul. Did that. Yeah. And I think that Jack Harlow is, is being his most authentic self. I think, and we're going to get to this in a minute, but like there's a comparisons with Eminem when to me, the person that he's most mimicking and most like at this point is Drake. I hear a lot of Drake's like kind of insecurities and, you know, um, the things that the things that they rap about are very, very similar. But I don't think that that's because Jack's trying to be Drake. I think it's because he's rapping about what's real to him and they happen to be similar kind of people. I mean, that's fair. But I, I look at Jack's status as one of the biggest artists in the game. Very promising. I think that there are a lot of people like you or I that could very easily that not could very easily that are resistant to to new faces in hip hop that I think give Jack Harlow a listen and go, no, he's, he's, he's all right. Like he's cool. But to make this point, I don't like, I just think like make other stuff. If it's what's going on in your mind, that's fine. But if Jack Harlow wants me myself to feel sorry for his predicament, that he, he feels as though he's all of these things that he deserves credit for, but all people reduce him to as a white rapper, you're missing me. But don't you think that's true? Don't you think that's one of the biggest criticisms he gets is that it's that he's only getting this attention because he's white? I, I would think so. And if I'm on social media and I'm Jack Harlow, I'm sure I'm seeing that quite a bit. You think? Uh, I mean, maybe quite a bit. I know that that has always been a conversation, and I look at it. You know, I look at it institutionally. I mean, you know, the Beastie Boys very early in their career got to open for Madonna. Would Run DMC have gotten that look? No. 
Beastie Boys Fight for Your Right to Parties played on rock radio. Run DMC had to work with Aerosmith to get that same kind of love, and I don't think they necessarily got it to the same extent. I think Jay-Z had to do a whole album with Linkin Park to get some of that love that Eminem got on his first two or three albums. Um, you know, there is a huge disconnect. There is, you know, media and and folks that are on the periphery of hip-hop that do these things. I know there will always be some discussion online, but I don't look at Jack Harlow as scrutinized by his identity. I don't. I mean, you know, I heard DJ, I was in a room with DJ Drama where he himself said this weird-looking kid, like Jack Harlow, like Little Dicky, like other people doesn't, you know, he defies the stereotypical image of what an artist looked like at a certain time. But I don't think that Jack Harlow is taking licks at every single turn in the road because of it. Maybe I'm out of touch. Maybe I'm in the wrong conversation. Or maybe it's perception, right? Like, um, I think regardless, and this speaks to my bigger point, right? Like, regardless of what is factual, his perception is likely that he's being attacked because he's a white rapper. Yeah. And because of that, I think he has the right to write about it. And it's artistic because it's coming from his true vulnerabilities or inner thoughts, you know? So I think that any song that reflects that is cool. Like whether I agree with the subject matter or not. That's fair. I mean, yeah. that's cool. Does it change? Do these two songs change your opinion for better or worse at all about Jack Harlow? Um, they don't change my opinion because, like, like I said, I'm a fan and I think he's dope and I, I like this kind of authentic, you know, storytelling. And so it's cool. It's interesting. I don't necessarily agree with all of it. You know, we we debated this before. I don't agree with all the substance of the, the first song or, or the second one. But I do like the fact that he's going there, you know, and being real instead of just trying to be fake. He could have easily you know, rapped about drugs that he's taken and just, you know, how much money he's spending and how many women, how many women he has and stuff like that. But he chose to do something more true to his uh, circumstance, which, you know, I celebrate. You know, when I was 16 or 17 years old, you know, Talib Kweli was part of, you know, is hip hop worth dying for? Are you sure? You know, Dead Prez had, you know, lyrics um, that challenged audiences. You know, I remember white hip hop fans in my high school being like, Dead Prez doesn't like white people. And it couldn't be further from the truth. They just had a pro-black message. That doesn't mean so. And that raised questions. I hope that some of those same people I had those conversations with in 1999 and 2000, I know to still be hip hop fans. We stay in touch. I hope that Jack Harlow's fan base um, is somehow challenged by you know, especially especially in the first song, um, common ground to think about, about some of those things. And he's at least asked themselves some of the questions that Jack poses. If that happens, then I think Jack's mission is hit. And of the two songs, that is the one that I find um, to have far more merit. Yeah, well, there's a third song that, that touches on the subject, too. And this one is the one that's getting all the headlines. Um, so it's called They Don't Love It. And he says, your boy striving to be the most dominant ever, the hardest white boy since the one who rapped about vomit and sweaters. And hold the comments, because I promise you, I'm honestly better than whoever came to your head right then. They ain't cut from the same thread like him. They don't study doing work to get ahead like him. They don't toss and turn in the effing bed like him. So clearly he's referencing Eminem, and he's saying that he is the hardest white rapper since Eminem. Now, there's some, there's been some misinterpretation of the lyrics uh, online, and you know, I think it's it's good to clear uh, clear that up. He's not saying that he's better than Eminem. What he's saying is that he believes that he's the best since Eminem, 
And, you know, of course, he's probably going to be going for M at some point, too. He definitely went at him on his own record, you know. Um, but even saying that, so first of all, you know, he's making the Eminem comparison. And like I said, I, th I think it, it, he's more comparable to Drake than to M in terms of subject matter. But um, it made me think, OK, that, that's a big statement. There's a lot of white rappers who have come since Eminem who are super dope. You know, some who come to mind to me are Evidence, you know, who we talk about quite a bit on the show and are both huge fans of. Mac Miller from your hometown, Gayla Wolf, Ritz, Action Bronson, uh, Aesop Rock, Asher Roth, Russ, your old Drew, I know is one of your favorites. Um, and then Token is, is um, lesser known, but also incredibly skilled rapper. Um, any others come to mind to you? Man, I know. I know. When I listen back, others will. I'm just trying to think right now. I mean, that's a really that's a really good list of people that have been doing it for ten or more years. But you're right, and you know, I do want to say I think Evidence is very much I would consider a contemporary of M's. You know, Dilated goes back to those mid '90s at the same time Infinite put out. So I just want to add that caveat. That's true. That's true. And you know, along with that, you know, we're excluding people like LP and Vinny Paz and Ari the Rugged Man because they all predate Eminem too. Yeah. Uh, but the bigger point is that there have been a lot of dope rappers who happen to be white. Um, and so, you know, when you talk about technical ability, uh, I don't think the Jack is better than any of those people that I named technically. You know, he's got a very simplistic flow. It's, it's dope. He stays on beat. But, you know, a lot of those guys have super, super uh, incredible lyricism. Like you think about Yela and and Ritz and, uh, you know, folks like that. And they talk about incredible things like Ev does, Mac Miller did, Action Bronson's total package, Drew also. So I, I think it's a big statement. Um, is he more commercially successful than all of them? Um, I think he might be and might be already. I was looking on a Spotify and the song he has with uh, Lil Nas X has got 1.7 billion streams just on Spotify, which is just, you know, mind blowing. Um, and then, you know, he. but then you look at commercial success, you look at Macklemore, who we talked about earlier, who had massive success from, say, 2012 to 2014 or so. G-Eazy has had a lot of success. NF has had a lot of success. So I'm not even sure that he's commercially more successful. So, you know, the way I look at this song is that it's a lot of braggadocio. Um, and as a rapper, I think that's doing your job as a rapper is saying I'm the best and then going out there and trying to prove it. So I'm not mad at the song, you know, but I, I thought it was interesting that, you know, with two songs, he's trying to kind of, I won't say distance himself from being a white rapper, but make it not all about that. And then on another song, he goes right at comparing himself to the biggest white rapper. It's a little bit contradictory, I thought. Yeah, no, it is. And I don't think he's going at Eminem either. I mean, obviously, at a at a key point in Jack's career, there was that remix. Um, I would imagine there's, you know, some admiration there. And I think he's, I think in all three cases, Jack Harlow is being provocative. That's what I think. And I think he's doing, um, even if I'm, you know, eye-rolling at some of it, I think he's doing a good job just in the, you know, of other music that came out right now. Jack Harlow knows how to get you talking. Yeah, for sure. For sure. He said, I saw so, for a while. <laughs> well, and, and with that said, you know, you alluded to it earlier and the joke that I made on text this morning, um, which was chippy. And I was being um, I was being a little bit playful because you didn't buy me a drink. You owed me. And I was disappointed. In I didn't buy you. You, you owed me a drink. Doc. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Cancel each other out. <laughs> but uh, 
No, I I texted Reggie. I was like, yo, man, I want my soon-to-be wife to love me as much as you love Jack Harlow. <laughs> which I just you know, I thought it was I thought it was funny for a 9:30 a.m. text, and you know, I, I didn't get a response. So um, I yeah, did. Thought- I said I was going to punish you for that, like on, <laughs> later on today. Uh, pause. Pause. Come on, pause, hey. pause. <laughs> <laughs> come on man. Like you know, um, I would say I talk about logic, then I more I do more Jack Harlow. Um, yeah. I talk about I don't really talk about Jack Harlow much. You know, uh, sidebars you've had. Um, I think that he has the potential to be huge, and I've said. And I'm going to go on the record of saying this again. I think I've said it before, but I think he has the potential to be as big as Drake. Um, if he continues along this trajectory, um, and it might not, especially with movies coming out, like White Man Can't Jump and stuff like that, I think that there's that potential. And uh, I do think it has to do with a lot of what we discussed today, too. And it's not saying that he's like just an outsized talent, but I do think he has talent. He's got charisma. You can play sports. He's an actor. He's he's got a lot of things going for him that could make him into a superstar, um, you know. And so, and but I don't. I think I thought that was an unfair uh, text. It was. I was. I was. I was being a little bit uh, petty, <laughs> but you know, I completely disagree on the Drake comment. I don't think Jack Harlow is headed in that. And um, yeah, I mean, if if that ever happens, you know, you and I will be you know old men. But I will buy you far more than a drink. You're gonna have and, to owe me. You have to buy me a house when that. Comes. Yeah, there we, there we go, there we go. I, but I, um, I think Jack Harlow is destined for for really interesting things. I think he's here to stay. My hope is, um, you know, as we talk about race, and then we'll, we'll move into the rest of the album. But you know, one of the things, you know, I just today saw MGK doing a freestyle with, I guess was it Corday? You know, there's 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 white artists that come in and out of hip hop at key times. My hope is, especially after Jack makes this point that that doesn't happen. Iggy Azalea was a great example. She came in as a rapper and she left as something else. Mm. Um, And Drake has done a phenomenal job maintaining his stardom. One of the best in my lifetime, arguably the best in hip hop's lifetime at a superstar level at being, you know, in the headlines in 2009 and not going anywhere in 2023 I think Jack Harlow, it would be very, very difficult for him to come anywhere close to that. But yeah, I will credit you. You have a better eye um, for star power. I mean, just given you know your background in television and really seeing tremendous potential in people that, you know, in a lot of ways, I have more faith in your scouting report than mine, but I don't think so. Well, let me just be clear, because I can see the comments now. I'm not saying that he's definitively <laughs> going to be as big as Drake, because Drake is arguably the, the biggest artist of all time commercially. You know, it's certainly in the streaming era. And I think it's 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 incomparable. It's it's apples and rocks, not even fruit. It's apples and rocks compared to streaming era, era versus um, versus the, the hard copy era. But then also there was way more... Uh, way more things vying for your attention now and also way more outlets than than were before. And so it's harder to kind of sustain things the way he has. So Drake has done something that I don't know will ever be topped, but of the current crop of artists out there, I think that he has, he's as poised as anyone to have that kind of run. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, All right. One other question. And then I'm going to let you, I want you to talk about the album. Yeah. Is White Men Can't Jump worthy of a remake? Oh, man. Uh, we'll see, right? 
I mean, I think the answer to that question is always how good is the product? Um, I think that pretty much any movie, no matter how great, uh, is, 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 um, it's possible to have a remake. Like, so I think about a star is born. It's been made three times now. Right. And a lot of people probably thought the definitive one was Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand, but the one with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga was outstanding. It was really, really good. And, you know, Karate Kid with Jaden uh, Smith, I thought was great. Too. Like, so it's going to depend on the product. There's a lot of remakes that are just absolutely terrible, but I got to say, I'm excited for this. I think it looks cool. I didn't realize he was 6'3 and actually got hoop skills. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a great casting, uh, but we'll see. What about you? I haven't watched the original, I bet you, in 20 years. I, I always thought it was a fine movie, like a TBS TNT afternoon movie of like, yeah, yeah. I'll watch this. But I never thought it was, uh, <laughs> I thought that it was as good as the previous time that Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes were in a movie together, Wildcats, which also starred some of the fat boys, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Um, I didn't think I didn't think it was a it was a classic. It's not a hallmark of my era. So I agree. Um, I okay. never thought it was a classic either, you know, and so but they could do better. You know, I'll say on the flip side, you could have another house party. The new house party was not met with favorable reviews. I haven't seen it. Um, and the same thing with um, Space Jam, LeBron Space Jam, both ironically tied to LeBron. But yeah, um, haven't watched we'll any see. of those. Yeah, we will see. But um yeah, so, tell, tell us a little bit about what else stuck out yeah, to you so on this. Quick few other songs I thought were noteworthy. One is Ambitious, which sonically I thought was one of the dopest beats on the entire album. Um, that one is him uh, talking about three different points in his life, each in five-year increments. Starts when he's 14 years old and then 19 and then 24. And I thought it was really interesting when he was 19. He said, Streets rap, street raps make me ask if this era is for me. Is the playing field fair or is it fair for me? Woo. Which I thought was really, really dope. Um, you know, for him to say that, um, one, acknowledging that he's not a street rapper and that's not what he's going to be doing. Um, and so he's not going to be inauthentic. I thought was cool. But then also saying, listen, I understand that the playing field may be fair for me. And, um, you know, acknowledging that. So, you know, he's got a complex relationship with race and it's manifesting many times throughout this album. Another song, Gang, 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 is unlike many songs I've heard in the past. He talks about, you know, friends from back in the day and people he thought he'd always be friends with. And they kind of swore that allegiance to each other. But when it gets real, sometimes you got to reevaluate. Re and a couple of his friends end up, and this is a true story, uh, being um, accused sex offenders. And he had to distance himself from that, uh, which I thought was really interesting. On Denver... He talks about his insecurities and he wrote the first verse in September of 2022 and then the second in January of 23 and uh, when he was in a better place and supposedly sober and focused in that um, in that second verse. But he, he talks about, you know, about be becoming so vain and insecure about everything um, and isolating himself and hiding his weaknesses from his friends and he doesn't want them second guessing with along with him. And then he talks about, but the brags in his raps are getting less and less convincing, which is interesting, right? Like, you know, rappers are expected to have this machismo and like um, invincibility. And for him to acknowledge, yeah, some of my, my raps might be cap, I thought was really interesting. And then uh, Blame On Me talks about his complicated relationship with his older and younger brothers. And then lastly, questions, 
I thought was interesting because the entire song is composed of questions revealing his insecurities and it's stuff like, what if I don't meet the expectations? What if I don't reach my destination? What if I have to live up to the hype despite all my dedication? And why do you think I'm scared to take vacations? It's just an interesting way to close the album. And I think this speaks to a lot of what we discussed today in that this album is about Jack Harlow raising questions for people to think about both himself and people outside of himself. And I think it does a pretty good job of that. You know, I'm two listens in. You and I tend to keep running tabs of, you know, albums that are here to stay, you know, at least in the context of the year. And I, I know I've, I've said some nice things about Jack and I've said some, I don't think overly critical. Um, but I will tell you that I think of these 10 songs, this project, Jack man is absolutely in my, you know, and I only say this after two listens, but it's in my my 10 albums of the year right now, which is saying a bit, but we'll see how it hangs in there as the year goes on. Does that make you a fan? No, we're not there yet. <laughs> okay. If he was black, would you be a fan? No. Okay. No, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> you know, what's funny is we did that list, right? Um, and... You know, Benny the Butcher was on it and Droog was on it. And those are two artists that I would consider myself a fan of. I really liked Corday's Lost Boy Project. Um, and if you would have asked me in 2019, I would have told you, yeah, I'm a fan of Corday. Um, recently, I texted you, you know, you and I do a song of the day often. And Corday, a song that wasn't on any album with Q-Tip that I heard. And I was like, this, you know, I'm right on the cut. I'm a fan of Corday, I guess, but it takes a lot and it should, it should. I'm not here to be a fan of everybody, but I'm here to say um, thoughtful, positive things to everybody. And I try to treat my personal life that way too. All right. Okay. All right. Well, man, uh, that was, uh, that was spirited. Uh, what what else we got this week? So you brought something to my attention that I didn't see, but I found really interesting. And it has to do with an artist that I, mention in my little bit fumbly stumbly point um tower the creator um you want to talk about something that we learned about what is hopefully a long time from now yeah so tyler the creator was in concert and you know he said to the audience he after doing a freestyle uh he did a freestyle and do you remember what beat it was to no i don't know uh but it was dope and then afterwards he said he has a lot of music um presumably in in the tuck that he hasn't released. And he said um, that he was not going to, that he actually has a provision in his will prohibiting the release of, of music after he dies, which I, I found to be fascinating. You know, it's, it's certainly something that, um, you know, you have your, you have your bones to pick with things. Like I actually don't like posthumous music because I believe that the artist's, didn't release it for a reason. Either they didn't think it met a certain quality level or it was too personal or they didn't think it fit the time or whatever it may be. And so, you know, I've always had a really conflicted relationship with it. And it's interesting. I think the third thing that, you know, it might not be the right time is the one thing that makes me think, you know, okay, maybe because I think about some of my favorite ever Prince song is Joy and Repetition from the Graffiti Bridge um, soundtrack. That, uh, that song actually was released as a bootleg on, I believe it was Crystal Ball, uh, maybe four or five years before it came out officially, right? And it is an absolutely incredible song, you know, in my opinion, one of Prince's best. And, you know, if we had been deprived of that because he happened to die before it was released, I think that would be a huge, huge loss. So 
it doesn't necessarily speak to the quality, but I can think of other things, uh, instances where like with a lot of Tupac music that I've heard. And I think I've told you, I've refused, I've, I've never listened to a, a, a posthumous Tupac album outside of Machiavelli because I felt like they were bastardizing the product. You know, I heard changes and I'm like, is he really going to be doing a song to the Bruce Hornsby beat? Like, I don't know. Maybe that was the original. You, you give me the finger like that was. It was. But, uh-huh. but 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 he hadn't put it out. Right. Is he going to actually put it out if he's alive? So like that makes me wonder. Yeah, he might have done a lot of stuff that like that he was experimenting with. But would he have put it out to the public? So, you know, I wanted to like have a discussion about posthumous albums because I, I know you feel differently. You've listened to and actually like a lot of Pac's posthumous stuff, right? Pac is a bit of an exception to me. And it was also put on both sides. Um, there are really good Pac posthumous things. I thought they did something um, really well. I mean, you mentioned changes. And the what I've been told, what I've researched, and, and I think I mentioned in our last episode, they play a demo version of that song. And it, I don't know if it was held back because of sample clearances or budgets, but Pac did that. And then E-40 did it before changes ever came out, um, I think on his Hall of Game album, to the same same sample. But when they put out his greatest hits in 1998, the double disc, they put a you know five or six unreleased Pac songs, you know, um, Untouchable, Troublesome. Um, it's not Untouchable, Troublesome. Um, uh, no, Toss. There's there's a, there's a few of them, and they were they felt to me really uncut. They felt really good. There, I, I want to say that they edited a couple of his jabs at other people. One of the things that I was told is that after Pac passed. You know, his mother, Afeni, wanted, she didn't want her son represented as vitriolic as he may have been in his last days of recording. But changes I always thought was was good. I mean, I know it's become, and this may change after the the, the docu-series, but it's it's the Pac song that you tend to hear the most. If it's either that or it's Dear Mama. And it is manufactured. You know, whether or not he recorded that, they took a verse, um, I believe, from A Wonder of Heaven's Got a Ghetto and threw it on. But it's, the track masters did it. They did it thoughtfully. There was a video of of montage at a time when that wasn't quite so trite. I always thought it advanced the message a little bit. Um, similarly, that, right? Like throwing on a, a reused verse. Like I mean, Pac would have never done that. And that's the problem I have is that if an artist wouldn't have done it, then I don't I don't want to hear it. I want to hear what is true to the artist. Well, we'll have to ask Chat GPT what Pac thinks. No, I'm, oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I, I keep laughing at people talking about those conversations with Pac and Biggie on Chechi. But I, um, I, I, you make a valid point. I also thought that in 20, 2006, um, the Interscope team, Shamoni XL was very much part of it. They did a project called Pac's Life. Swiss Beats did a lot of remixes. Um, at a time when I thought the unreleased Tupac catalog was very bastardized, you had people like Suge Knight throwing bullshit death row artists on there just to like try to get them some come up. You ha- or putting death row producers to remix the songs. You had a Faney asking for some re-recorded verses. You had um, members of the Outlaws that were taken off of songs because of paperwork. Like total chaos. But out of it, there were some there were some cool songs, but Pac's life came and that was a case of like they were just trying to completely overhaul things like they made a custom album out of what they had left. And I thought it had gravitas, Um, you know, that you had Nipsey Hussle and Pac on a song together. And while you knew that it wasn't real, 
there was some symbolic gravitas to that that only now proves itself in time, you know, 15 plus years later. I'm not mad at it. And it is tricky too. Um, you know, the other, the other, I guess we can talk about some good examples. You, you, maybe. Raise, you, raise, you raise a good point because like one of my favorite songs last year was a posthumous Nipsey song, which, you know, with Dr. Dre. And I know they had their kind of, um, uh, complicated relationship, you know, but that song Diamond Mine, I think is absolutely incredible. Um, right. and I think that was an alchemist B too, right? Um, yeah, yeah it was but, with Ty Dollar son on it. And, yeah. you know, I, I, your Prince example is a really good one. And, and obviously, you know, Prince had the control to decide everything's right in its own time. And as I understand it, Prince was very careful with songs you know, they could go years in many cases from when they were recorded or first introduced via bootlegs and other things to when they actually came out. I mean, I liked Changes because it kept Pac's name alive in 1998. And even though that was just two years, it felt like a long two years. And as as rap was changing so much, it reminded me at the time, and maybe I'm biased, of, of you know, my favorite artist and, and still having a song that you could hear on radio or even see on freaking TRL, you know. Um, so that's one thing keeps the name alive. And I think that's also true of what Kendrick Lamar did on to pimp a butterfly by manufacturing a Tupac interview. And I know that that's not totally what we're talking about, but it's taking a Liberty. And I thought that it worked really well. I thought that that was artful. Well, you, okay. So you talked about, you, you had a point though, about Swizz making uh, something, a similar point. You want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things, and I, I wanted, I kind of looked to check him on this and I would say that Swizz has honored this pretty well. He did do that recent song with Lil Wayne that featured a DMX sample, but in 2021, just a little bit after DMX passed, Swizz was quoted as saying, we got a lot of music. He had a lot of music. Um, he worked so hard on Exodus, which was the album that had just come out now. I don't really want to tamper with things unless it can be better than this record. I don't want to just put things out. Even with the footage, we recorded the whole process of the album. We could have just been putting that footage out right now to promote the album. But let's do something masterful with it. Let's treat it as art and curate it to where it adds to his legacy. And it's not just a blip of the moment that seems like it works when you still don't understand the whole story. He deserves for you know the, this art to be created and his story to be told. So I really like that. Um, and, and Swizz is successful. And I when Swizz said that, I thought that's really cool because here you have a superstar, a very wealthy, you know, entrepreneur that is more interested in preserving legacy than just seeing cash grabs. And cash grabs is one of the reasons why the posthumous album has been bastardized. Yeah, I mean, so you, you talked about some of the pros, right? And I, I do think that Tupac example on Tup Pimp a Butterfly was dope. Like when I was listening to the album for the first time, I heard this voice come on. And it was jarring. I was like, yeah, I know that voice. Who's that voice? And it sounded like a real conversation. I was like, oh my God, that's that's too this is crazy. That was incredible. And and that was clearly not Pac's intention, right? But it was done in a way that was artful and I liked it. So it's very complicated for me, right? I, another pro is, you know, the real less realities of it is money for the estate. Oftentimes artists die and they're not that financially uh, well off. You know, even Prince's estate was not nearly what people thought it would be. And DMX was in real kind of financial tatters. And so uh, posthumous releases create money for the estate. And I think about that line that Lupe had on, on, on Fodem where he says, what's another name for a life insurance policy? 
Spotify. Like that's a really grim uh, way of, of looking at it, but you know, very true. And then it also, to your point, you know, bridges generations. So there's a lot of people who would never know some of these artists if they didn't hear the posthumous stuff and then go back and check out the catalog that was made when they when they die. Um, but I, but and but I also think that uh, any, any other pros for you? Yeah, I mean, just to that point, I, I think there's a way to flash a connection. I actually went back today and looked at Pac's life, and I believe J-Rock was on that album, like a very early J-Rock. You had Nipsey, so Gray A and Ring again. I think it was Sean Money that did that. You know, I look at I look at um, Big Crit and Pimp C. I mean, Pimp C died in 2007. Crit got real hot in 2010 and 11. Pimp is such an influence on Crit. If you're gonna do a UGK album, and they've done this, and put those guys together, be thoughtful about it. And they have. And and you mentioned, um, you know, uh, Nipsey Hussle and, and Dre, and we, who knows how that song evolved after Nip passed. So yeah, those are pros. Um, the other things that I'll say too is it can shift the narrative. You know, I'll use the case of Gangstar in 2019, um, you know, premiere, and we reported on this, learned about it after the fact, had, uh, you know, acquired some of the material that Guru had recorded with Solar, who became his musical partner after parting ways with Premiere in the early 2000s. And those guys, there was love there, clearly, but they were not in a great place, their relationship. And Primo has said this. So he acquired this music and then went to work for years. You and I were in the studio and knew this project was happening, you know, years. Uh, we were in the studio with Guru's Ashes, actually, um, back in 2018. And we knew that Premier, Premier was doing something, but he used his beats and Guru's lyrics to kind of get the last word. Like when I think of Gangstar right now, I don't think of two men who were a distant. I think of them getting, getting, they get to write their own final chapter. That's pretty cool. And I wasn't the biggest fan of the song in the early 2000s, but, you know, Nas and Tupac, who had beef, but reportedly kind of talked through it in the last days of Tupac's life. They used the posthumous production to make Thug's Mansion on the, it was written and it was on one of different mixes were on each artist's album. I didn't love that song. I remember it being hot on the radio, but it's kind of a cool way when you think of these two guys, you don't think of the, what they said about each other. You think of like, oh, they really were contemporaries of one another. And I think there's value in that. Yeah, you know, that that song, The Hook, was actually sung by a friend of mine uh, that I used to work with, um, a guy named Jay Phoenix, real name Larry Lofton, super dope. But um, you know, the cons for me, though, are that, you know, again, like I said, oftentimes I think the product is not something the artist would have wanted had they been alive. Um, and the flip side of, like, you know, bringing money for the estate is that oftentimes it's a money grab because it's not really the estate that's getting the money. It's the record company. And... They're profiting off someone's death, which, you know, uh, I don't find to be appealing. And then, you know, we've, we've skirted around this, but a lot of these features would not have been people that the artists would have worked with. You know, a lot of times it's pairing someone with someone who's hot and of the moment. And, you know, I think about Exodus and the money bag, yo, uh, when, you know, he wasn't meant to be on that record. And I don't know that DMX would have had him on the record. And so... You know, there's just stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, so we, we touched on this a little bit, but I want to get into what actually counts as a posthumous album and then some of the best ones and some of the worst ones. So, you know, for me, a posthumous album is an album where the artist really has no input into the assembly of the final product. Um, I think about things like Machiavelli and Life After Death, 
and even Exodus. And you know, my belief is that those guys, just you know, based on how recordings work, probably le- listened to the final versions of those before they passed. And so they were authentically their albums, and I wouldn't consider those to be posthumous. Um, the Shining by Dilla, you know, maybe like, you know, uh, I'm not sure about the timing of that one, but it did come out in the same year, uh, maybe four or five months after his passing. And so I would consider that not to be a posthumous album either. Um, any other ones that, you know, happened after death that you think? I, I think, I mean, I think I treat it as a real album, but Big Pun's Yeah Baby, which, you know, that was one I always looked at and I was like, I feel like Pun would have added some more songs to it. But it felt like a complete body of work. And then the It's So Hard record, again, that was a case where, you know, music video directors knew how to capture the confusion we as fans were feeling and make like Tupac, like Biggie. I mean, you think of the um, Sky's the Limit video. My God, you know, we had just lost one of the greatest rappers to ever live and we're seeing him as a kid, you know, and, and all the other guys as kids. Like those are effects. But I look at I look at those albums that you just mentioned as I count them. Um, and there's there's a caveat here, a caveat there. The money bag, yo. I'm glad you brought that point up here. You do so. You do or don't count those as posthumous albums? I don't. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I I think there's always a little bit of the turn of the switch. I wanted to you know kind of re- revisit today the story of whether or not Tupac signed off on the Machiavelli artwork. I always kind of thought that, that was death row being like, let's lean into this shit hard. Um, yeah. But also, Pac was super provocative and eh, you know hard to say. But, so so what are some of the best posthumous albums then? I'm going to go again, just quickly, Tupac's Greatest Hits. I would give it up to Big L's The Big Picture, which, you know, I, I take to be a real real album. Contemporarily, Gangstars, I just said, you know, one of the best yet. Mac Miller's Circles, um, which, you know, finds Mac getting further and further from hip-hop, but you and I covered it. We really like the album. It's very evocative. Um, also, just as we talk about... Um, you know, the underground and obviously those first two, I'm including them in this discussion, but they kind of fall in that bucket we just talked about a minute ago. So Gangstar, Mac Miller, I would also say Sean Price's Imperious Rex, which we had in 2017 is one of the better albums. And that's more than two years removed from Sean P passing. So those are three that jump out of me. Any for you? Yeah, I would say forever you know from from fife dog i thought that was a really incredibly well constructed album and then also i thought we got it from here thank you for your service even though it wasn't my favorite tribe album i think it was a good album and i think it 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 did justice to uh, you know fife's legacy um i'd say those are the ones for me uh i agree with you on big l's a big picture and mac miller one of the best yet definitely was one of my favorites too but I, but the common thread for me between that and we got it from here and maybe some of these others is that, you know, to your point, they had people who were very, very close to the artists who worked with the artists putting together the final product, you know, the yeah. tribe one, you know, it's kind of a hybrid, clearly like all the other members were alive and Q-Tip was, you know, kind of the person who was the sonic engineer of those albums anyway. And so this was, I think him functioning in the DJ premiere role with the Gangstar album of, knowing what his, you know, rhyme partner liked and how to like construct beats around him um, and package it in a way that would be authentic to that person's taste and viewpoint. And so that, and Imperious Rex to me is great too, you know? Um, So those are probably the biggest ones for me. 
Greatest Hits, like it's hard for me to call a Greatest Hits album posthumous given how much of it was, you know, actual current stuff too, or, you know, stuff that was before he died. And Pac's Life, I don't even know if I listened to um, in full, uh, just because I saw how much stuff was being released of his afterwards and just given the circumstances under what, what under how he died and the questions about death row and to your point about Machiavelli, the potential exploitation of that too, I just couldn't support it. Um, and so it's not a commentary on the the quality of it. I just, I just really couldn't support it in general. I'll tell you to give it a spin, but I know you wouldn't know. Uh, maybe, maybe, <laughs> you know, you know, Pac's death was a lot for me too. And yeah. so, you know, what, what was great for you and kept him alive was a reminder to me of his, is being, um, you know, taken from us way, way prematurely. So, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and so and what that, are the, some of the worst, though. I remember, I mean, Born Again felt rough. And and the thing of it is, is the songs that worked on it, you know, like Dead Wrong, you know, that record was around. Um, the, the things that worked on that album, there was another joint with Sadat X that was, you know, part of the, I think either like the Ready to Die leak or the demo. Um, but the other stuff, I mean, he was with 98 Degrees singing Notorious, right? Like doing the, the uh, what is that? Duran Duran or Tears for Fears. The Nut, Nut, Notorious. That's Duran Duran. Duran Duran. I always confuse the two. That was rough, man. That was yeah. that was bad. And, and with Biggie in particular, you know, Pac left all these recordings behind. We were told up front that Big was the type of artist that put out almost everything he released. Yeah. And that is a situation, you know, you talk about Tyler, you talk about X, you know, all respect due to the Wallace family. I've spoken to Biggie's mom before. Puff and Bad Boy, they didn't need to do that. They really didn't. A lot of recycled big verses out there, too. You know, so, you know, side, you, you mentioned chat GPT earlier, but there's this rise of deep fakes recently and a lot of them are remakes of songs by by other artists. So. The one I just heard actually before we started today was Biggie uh, rhyming on New York State of Mind. Have you heard that? Yeah, oh, man, you just yeah. yeah. So Jake just got a, a face, a face of like ah, uh, like it was just like ah, uh. and yeah, man. A lot of people are like, nah, man, this doesn't sound right. This is like Nas's Kate. It sounds weird, like uh, and so. So, okay, if it was well done, if it was a well done song, would that make you feel better or no? Or no? Okay. No, man, bump that. But what, I mean, other Why, other though? why though? Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Why, is, right, that, cool. it, why is a well-crafted AI song different than a song that the artist did, but might not have been the beat that they use or the feature they would have wanted or the, the way it was constructed? I am perfectly okay if I never hear Empire State of Mind again in my life. You know, I uh, that no New know. York state of mind, New York state of mind. Oh shit, that changes everything. Nah, uh, still no, still nah. no. But st- I heard that. You know, what's funny is I was saying the Tom record Sp- show. Jake hates Jay Z. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, even still, man, I you know my position on this whole AI thing. That doesn't sound fun to me. It doesn't even sound fun if I was looking at a mixtape in 2004 and they were like called it a blend i just biggie rap to what biggie rap to i don't need to hear that um i'll just level with you i'm much happier though to know that it was new york state of mind and not empire state of mind is that another area where jay jack nas like uh <laughs> you know i just heard i mean they did that remix i don't know if you heard it recently where they they put it back out and they added some gil scott heron to it and i listened because it popped up on my release radar 
And, you know, I, I will never take away what that song must mean to somebody with a lot of pride about New York. Um, you know, I love On to the Next on the Blueprint 3 album. Shout out to Swizz. That song, 2009, between Empire State of Mind and Drake So Far Gone and Miss Me. Oh, man, I was I was you talk about 2010 for you. I was so close to just checking out, man. I just it was it was a hard time for me. But I'll say all that to say Jay's verse is really good. It's the beat. It's the you know, the 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 power pop of it all. It's just not my jam. Any other ones that stick out is like uh, maybe that should have been left in the vault. Yeah, ODB's A Sun Unique, which I think went under a lot of people's radars. Um, he had a cover with Macy Gray of Don't Go Breaking My Heart, which is one of the roughest things you might ever hear in your life. Um, you know, Left Eye put out I Legacy. I think that in the case of Left Eye, between all the stuff that she did, you know, that we didn't get to hear, would have been best to leave it alone. Um, and then, you know, we talked about I'm not trying to get my kicks in, but the King and I album of Faith Evans with with Biggie and to your point, I mean, there's this is somebody who's very close with Big. You know, they had a relationship together, started a family together, but that wasn't that that wasn't necessary in my opinion, and that was really rough to see when that came out. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I, I think uh, some recent releases from Pop Smoke and then XXX Tentacion also, uh, you know, tough, tough. So yeah, all right, man. So. Quickly, uh, Praz has been in the news from the Fuji's. You're, I think you're closer to the story than I. You, you want to break it down? Yeah, I mean, it's a developing story. But, you know, Praz Michel, you know, one third of the Fuji's is um, he's been accused in a multi-million dollar political conspiracy that spans two presidents. This Wednesday, he was convicted um after a trial that involved some other heavy hitters, including Leonardo DiCaprio and former U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Um, and what he's being accused of is funneling money from a Malaysian financier who is now a fugitive through straw donors to Barack Obama's 2012 reelection campaign. And then trying to squelch a Justice Department investigation and influence an extradition on behalf of China under the Trump admin. What that means, if I understand this correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, um, Praz was kind of a mixture of of a scheme and a little bit, he's been convicted of kind of like, not spying, but kind of tampering. Is that fair to say? Money laundering to some degree. and, And also, well, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, as I understand it, He's being convicted of trying to influence politicians on behalf of others through those others' money. And, um, you know, Chuck D weighed in and, you know, he had kind of two points. One is that, you know, you don't see in the news that Praz was is an incredibly uh, smart individual, um, you know, vying for valedictorian of his class in high school. He went to a, a very prestigious high school along with Lauren Hill. And that they're positioning him like a rapper. You know, you always hear that term in the news, a rapper. And, you know, it's synonymous with thug or gangster or whatever. And that's not pros. Um, But then also that he might be kind of a fall guy. You know, the belief is that this is, while he might be guilty, um, you know, he certainly wasn't in it alone, but he was positioned to take the fall for it. And so there's a lot of stuff that is still in question on this. Uh, David Kenner, his lawyer um, of death row fame back in the day, you know, David Kenner was notoriously 
um, the lawyer who dealt with all of Death Row's criminal stuff back in the day, and there was quite a bit, unfortunately, is representing Proz, which I, th- I find to be fascinating because now that's we're 30 years out from that almost. And uh, I, I, I'm shocked that he's even still an attorney because I think he was probably in his mid-40s or, or so when that happened. I think, yeah, he was even older then. He did rep for a time uh, the Suge Knight trial that ultimately landed him behind bars now back in 2015. They, they reunited for that. Yeah. So he's he's saying there's going to be an appeal. And so, you know, we'll see. But it's it's unfortunate. It's a, it's an unfortunate circumstance. Um, no matter what, it sounds like there was some stuff that uh, was a bit shady. Um, you know, he Proz took the stand himself and said that he was an FBI informant and in trying to collect information uh, from the Chinese government on behalf of the FBI. But, you know, that didn't seem to hold water and he was convicted and could be facing Pretty substantial time um, if this isn't over. If this isn't overturned in appeal. Yeah, I mean, this just shocked me. Just as a as a parting thought, I mean, Praz is one third of one of the most successful albums, um, you know, the last thirty years. And I know that it is closer to thirty years old. And I don't know if you know what the motives were for him being involved. But I hate to see somebody. I mean, in in twenty sixteen, we did a report on the site. I just how successful that group was given the fact that they took very little upfront money on the score. Um, it was three people and Praz at that time said it sold 22 million copies. Um, the RIA says otherwise, but I think he was referring to globally and just somebody, if it was about money, it's, it's a sad reminder that he should not have been in that position. And if it was about something else, um, yeah, it's just a reminder to be careful out there. Yeah, I mean, he says that he doesn't. He didn't know that he was doing anything illegal. You know, uh, taking money from one person to pass on the campaigns on its face doesn't sound illegal. So I don't know, um, but but we'll see. Like you said, it's a break. It's a developing story. Yeah, yeah. So the only other thing is uh, Kendrick's Big Stepper story, which you caught, by the way, right? Yeah, yeah, twice. Um, the touring data, you know, uh, you know, a reporting medium on sales sort of like you know hits daily double or sound scan they do that for touring now alleges that that is the number one hip-hop tour of all time selling uh having earned 110 million dollars nearly 111 from 929,000 tickets across 73 shows um when the tour that they're saying that beats was aubrey and the three amigos so drake and amigos um any thoughts to that yeah, I mean, one, salute to Kendrick. Uh, it was a great show. Um, like I said, I saw it twice. Very entertaining. Also had a big look with Amazon. You know, it's on Prime. You know, people who didn't see the actual show can see it on Amazon Prime if you have that. Uh, second thing is that uh, I don't think it's going to last for long. Drake is going on kind of a greatest hits tour with 21 Savage this summer. And I've looked online at the prices and, you know, even like firsthand, you can't get tickets in on the floor for less than a thousand dollars in a lot of cases. And so that joint is going to be out of here. It wouldn't surprise me if it cracked 200 million. Um, But, you know, records are meant to be broken. And it's great to see these guys getting paid because to your point about Praz and the album sales from the, the Fuji's. A lot of times artists don't see a lot of money from that. The record company sees it all. And, you know, these performances are where artists get paid and both these dudes got paid. You think Drake or Kendrick, you know, and I know that these are things like the most streams that'll that'll be something that changes all the time with, 
each you know superstar releasing an album. You think they care about this data at all? Like as it comes out, I don't think they care about the rankings, but they definitely care about the gross, the overall gross. You know, uh, I, I forget that uh, song that, but you know, Drake says, you know, uh, open up my check, uh, man, it's gross what I net. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's I'm a good sure bar. They love that. They love that. Absolutely. So anything else jump out at you this week? Yeah, we lost a legend, uh, one who I know you had uh, some direct connection with, uh, maybe not personally, but, you know, you want to talk about Harry Belafonte? I will. I mean, I definitely grew up with my mom playing a lot of Harry's music. Um, And, you know, I know he was connected to hip hop as well. But as I mentioned earlier, um, to your point about, I can't even say it, yeet. Um, yeah, yeah, that's just funny. It feels like a my cousin Vinny joke. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, for a period of time during the pandemic, was writing bios for a major DSP, and I did some research on Harry. It's just important to, um, you know, Grammy winning, chart topping career. But what we, what he was musically, which is how I first knew him through my mom, um, you know, he gave, he gave, you know, records from, Caribbean Calypso music, um, an identity, you know, at least in the States. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was born amid the Harlem Renaissance, um, in the 1940s and fifties performed in New York city. Um, and he, you know, he, his debut concert was actually backed by Charlie Parker and Max Roach. Um, you and I spent some time talking about Ahmad Jamal last episode, two jazz legends, but it was his landmark third album Calypso that, you know, really brought people to the music of Trinidad and Tobago, which is, um, you know, interesting because uh, Harry Belafonte was born to Jamaican immigrants, but he shined a light on that, you know, the whole, you know, Caribbean and West Indian culture, I think. Um, and that that music took a took a huge um, impression here in the States. In later in the 60s, John F. Kennedy appointed Belafonte as a cultural advisor advisor to the Peace Corps. Um, 43rd Grammy Awards, Lifetime Achievement he received, and he had previously won Best Folk Performance for his song Swing That Hammer. Um, and yeah, I mean, and and you want to talk about the Beach Street connection for a second, just to bring it bring it home to hip hop? Yeah, uh, he was an executive producer, I believe, of Beach Street. Is that right? Um, yeah. And Beach Street was, as folks know, uh, you know, one of the first two films, you know, mainstream films about hip hop. There have been Style Wars and, and Wild Style. But in terms of big theatrical releases in 1984, um, there was Breakin and then Beat Street. And um, my, my understanding is that Breakin was finished after Beat Street, but they learned of Beat Street's existence and wanted to, to be the first in the market. And so they released it. But Beat Street of the two was was viewed as the far more kind of authentic one. You know, it was much more gritty. It focused on on graffiti. It had notable legends like, uh, you know, Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five and Cool Moldy, Treacherous Three, um, Rocksteady Crew, the New York City Breakers. It was one of those films that truly put an aspect of hip hop or many aspects of hip hop culture on the map. Jazzy J was in the film, Africa Bambata. Um, and Harry Belafonte is one of the, the, the people who helped to bring that to, uh, to reality. So, you Absolutely. know, ambassador for hip hop and for the world. 
Yeah, and we lost Sidney Poitier, I believe, early last year, and now Harry Belafonte. They were dear friends. And, um, yeah, I just – we're living in a time where a whole generation seems to be leaving us, which is as expected, but the world is not as as great, um, you know, in their absence. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with that said, man, you have a uh, you have a song of the week? Yeah, I do, man. I love playing our playlist and being reintroduced to songs that I love. Um, you know, we have a playlist on Spotify. And for those listening now, you know, like, subscribe, comment. We love getting the comments. We we typically engage. Uh, but if you want to check out the best in kind of like new hip hop, the kind of stuff we talk about, check out our Spotify. But there's an artist named La Russell who we talked about actually with Royce Five Nine on a previous episode. Royce and his manager Kino. Uh, we had a debate as to who was going to be bigger between La Russell and Simba. And uh, La Russell has a song called Every Place is Last Place on his Omaha EP. He was literally just passing through Omaha and decided to like record a record and has many of the locals featured on it. And that song is just so dope. He's He's got a real laid back, playful flow, but he dropped some gems too. And so... Um, uh, that's my my joint. Every every place is last place by La Russell. How about you? you? You put me onto that, and I really enjoyed that project. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go a little bit older. I'm gonna go 16 years back to since we're talking so much about white rappers. I gotta choose a white rapper. I'm gonna go with LP for all um, up all night. Just because I've I'm a little underslept. So for anyone out there, if I seemed a little bit in the stars, just know I I, I need my eight hours back. But uh, I, this conversation was so fun, and that one seemed apropos just for a abbreviated evening. Word, for sure, for sure. All right, man, well, always a pleasure. Likewise, man. Well, until we do it again, I enjoyed this, and I'm eager to see what everyone out there has to say about our thoughts. Same here, man, same here.